Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Left side, Swanson to first. Braves and baseball talk, straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. And hello and welcome in to another episode of From the Diamond. As always, I'm Grant McCauley. Appreciate you making some time to join me for what will be a whole bunch of fun conversations about the Atlanta Braves. And of course, look across the rest of Major League Baseball as we take our trip around the big leagues. Before we get things started today, I want to remind you to subscribe to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcast. You can find me there. You can also find me on the Odyssey app, and you can hear the show live on Sundays on Sports Radio 929 The Game, typically from 5 to 7, but we're going to start bouncing around with college football and the NFL both back in the very near future. So, as they say, check your local listings, or you can just ask me, and I'll let you know when I'm going to be on. But From the Diamond live on 929 The Game is a big part of what we do each week, so I hope you'll check it out then. As always, you can connect on social media. I'm at Grant McCauley on Twitter slash X and Instagram. You can find the show at From the Diamond on Instagram, at From the Diamond with an underscore on Twitter slash X. And you can find the show on Facebook. Just search for From the Diamond. And links to everything is found at FromTheDiamond.com. With all that out of the way, let's take a look back at what has been a very good homestand for the Atlanta Braves by and large. They swept away the New York Yankees, and that was about as convincing of a series win as the Braves have had all season long. Now, I will stipulate it definitely shows where the Atlanta Braves are this season and where, unfortunately, the New York Yankees, unfortunately for them, have fallen this year. All the way into the cellar of the American League East, I don't think too many people saw that coming. You always know it's going to be a tough race in that division, but seeing a last-place Yankees team and a Yankees team under 500, this is something we have not seen as far as the under 500 part since late in the 1995 season, and I think we all know what happened after that. But since this is not a focus on the New York Yankees, the big focus was on the Atlanta Braves and the offense, and they poured it on against New York to open up that series. But then we saw, I feel like, what Braves fans were needing to see. If there is a level of concern for a club with the best record in Major League Baseball and an area that folks really want to see get fortified, and I guess I could say the bullpen would also qualify, But the starting rotation, given the recent results, had generated some cause for concern. Now, I've been asked a lot about this on 92.9 The Game and all the call-ins I've done. I've discussed it here on the show. We've talked about it on social media. You know, the Braves came out of the trade deadline and the starting rotation hit the skids. So immediately you can look back and say, man, did we miss an opportunity to add a starter? Did we miss an opportunity to add two starters in some cases? And for some folks, that is what they were feeling. But I'm just not sure that those arms, the right arms, were out there that would upgrade what you had. Now, could you find somebody that might could have stabilized the fifth spot in the rotation? Sure. But I'm just not sure that wasting your prospect capital on a rental pitcher to cover the final two months, who then might not be on the postseason roster, and at the very least, if all goes according to plan, it's not going to be making October starts when you already have the best record in baseball. 
you have a huge lead in your division, and you have what I believe to be enough minor league depth to help get you through until you get a potential all-star return in Kyle Wright at some point in September. So I understand the calculus for Alex Anthopoulos, but those results, I think, had people questioning because Bryce Elder had been struggling. That's something that I think was pretty apparent. Charlie Morton, though, came out of the All-Star break and then immediately went into a four-start losing streak in which you kind of wondered what exactly was wrong with Charlie Morton and is he going to be able to fix it? Well, the answer to that, I think, is yes. And he did look much better his last time out with his 10 strikeouts and six strong innings against the New York Yankees. But it just felt like everything was compounding because on top of that, Spencer Strider stumbled. Max Fried even stumbled, though he did not look bad in his start. It was just one of those, okay, well, who exactly is going to step up and how is this rotation going to make it through? But as things go, when you've got guys with the kind of track records of a Charlie Morton, the upside of a Spencer Strider and the arsenal that he has, and then, of course, Max Fried being who he is with his track record, you feel like you've got the makings of the strong starting three that you need when you do look towards October. Now, putting Bryce Elder aside, because we'll get into him more later in the show, what's been going on in the fifth spot of the rotation has been a work in progress would be kind, but it has not generated the results that the Braves needed to. And there's just no way around that at this point. But it's a product of losing Max Reed for a long period of time, losing Kyle Wright for a long period of time, pushing and hoping that somebody's going to step up, and Bryce Elder certainly did, and leaning on Charlie Morton and Spencer Strider, along with Elder, to try to carry this rotation as far as it could until you get Max Fried back, which just happened to coincide with the trade deadline. And that's a good thing for Atlanta because, you know, perhaps Freed will have a little bit of extra juice having not had to work so hard for the entire season because he had to take those 90 days off. But getting back into the swing of things, as we know, can be a little bit difficult. And he's got a handful of starts to get himself figured out before the end of September and before October. But we'll talk a little bit more about the starting rotation and in particular that fifth spot because I know that the Yanni Chirinos experiment, so many people have been wondering, when is that going to come to a close when are we going to at least hit pause and see what else the Braves can throw out there every fifth day? And I think we got our answer this week when Chirinos was placed on the injured list with inflammation in his elbow. Whether or not that's been something that's been bothering him throughout his time with the Braves, whether or not it's just a good reason for him to hit pause and kind of step back and for the Braves to assess those other options, all of that can be on the table. All of that could be factors. But there's no way around the results. A 9.27 ERA in five starts. Somehow incredibly, the Braves won four out of those five games. But I would tell you it's the offense that was the driving force in that because they scored eight and a half runs per game on average on days that Yanni Chirinos was pitching. That's not something that you can count on uh, in the offense. I think you can count on eight and a half runs per game might be asking a little bit much, but you can't necessarily expect the offense to come to the rescue every fifth day for somebody struggling as much as Chirinos appeared to be struggling, particularly second and third times through the order just didn't seem to be working out. Now, we saw Alan Winans get an opportunity against the New York Mets. Could we see Jared Schuster's now up from the minor leagues? Him get an opportunity next turn through rotation? This is a chance for the Braves to start to maybe rest and lighten the workload a bit for their other four starters, and I think they should do that. And particularly as you get Kyle Wright back into the mix, this is a chance to not overwork your rotation down the stretch. That is nothing but a good thing. So we'll talk a little bit more about the Braves starting rotation and in particular that fifth spot as we wind on in the show. And of course, we've got a whole bunch of other things to talk about on this edition of From the Diamond. Not only did the Braves beat the Yankees, sweep the Yankees 
They also took two out of three from the San Francisco Giants over the weekend. They'll close out this homestand with a three-game series against the New York Mets. And then it's going to be a long road trip for the Braves that will begin in San Francisco this coming weekend as they meet the Giants yet again. And they'll stay out on the West to battle the Colorado Rockies and the Los Angeles Dodgers. And that, I think, will be a marquee matchup that a lot of eyeballs are going to be on for the Braves as the Dodgers have been red hot. The Braves still hold the best record in the National League, best record in baseball, which means home field throughout the playoffs. So this is going to feel a little bit at least, maybe like a playoff series come early or a playoff preview because it just feels like, and this has been this way, it seems, since 2018, that the Braves and the Dodgers are on a collision course for October. Last time that happened, the Braves had home field advantage in the National League Championship Series in 2021. The Braves won those first two games. They took control of that series. They won that series. And, of course, they won the next series against the Houston Astros to become the world champions. So home field advantage can be an asset, but you're going to have to go out there and obviously play the games themselves. That part is still very much to be decided as you get into any of those matchups. But both teams are going to have to get through at least one round of the playoffs prior to that, and that is going to be a focus as well as we start to see what postseason rotations and roster decisions are going to look like, particularly for the Braves, as they march towards October and hope to get healthy in that starting rotation among other places. One thing that I thought has been really, really interesting about the Atlanta Braves this season, in addition to having an 80-44 and record over the first 124 games of the season, the Braves are 42-25 and against teams with winning records this year. Now, that's a 627 winning percentage. And if you're curious, you know, a 627 winning percentage, what can that get you in the bigger picture in Major League Baseball if we were to just look at the standings? Well, you'd be leading the National League Central. You'd be leading the National League West. The Braves' record against 500 or better clubs is better than the Dodgers' record for the season. They've got a 618 winning percentage. A 627 winning percentage would have you leading, oh, I don't know, the American League East, where the Baltimore Orioles are 30 games over 500. It would also have you leading the AL Central and AL West, quite obviously, as the Orioles and the Dodgers are the two teams that are chasing Atlanta for the best record in baseball, with the O's, as of Monday's action, just ahead of L.A. in that overall picture. It's been impressive work for Atlanta, and obviously winning at home is a big part of that, as the Braves have been absolutely dominant at Truist Park. Having this homestand after a challenging road trip will hopefully send the Braves out west with some momentum on their side. Well, not only do the Braves do a good job of winning in general, of beating clubs with winning records, but they also do a pretty nice job of coming back to pick up those wins. Atlanta's first in Major League Baseball with 13 victories when trailing in the eighth inning or later. That is a stat and a trend of a winning club when you can find those comebacks in addition to everything that they're doing in the first inning and beyond. It's just been a tour de force for the Braves. They win in a lot of different ways. It can be different guys in the lineup on different nights. They're starting to get this rotation sorted out, and the bullpen, I kind of saved this for last, this is a group that's been asked to cover an awful lot, particularly with the struggles of the rotation throughout the year, having the injuries and the inconsistency. But here in the second half, as the rotation was really struggling to find itself, the bullpen has been able to back them up more times than not. It isn't going to be perfect. They're not going to come in the game and throw all zeros all the time, but this has been a group that statistically, and just on the eye test, has been able to handle a lot of innings for this Braves club and be a big part of the winning that they're doing. In any event, those are some of the things that we're going to talk about on the show a little bit more. We got into the starting rotation pretty deep here, but I want to get back to that Yanni Chirinos discussion a little bit later and talk about some of the other options that the Braves have, of course, in the fifth and or sixth spot of their rotation. 
But speaking of Braves starting pitchers, I had the opportunity to talk to a Hall of Famer. John Smoltz was in town to do the Bally Sports broadcast during the New York Yankees series. He'll be back for that players-only broadcast. It's coming your way on August the 23rd. I got to have a great conversation with him about all the fun he's having in the booth, his national broadcasting job, his memories of the Braves, and the trade that 36 years ago this month brought him to Atlanta and elevated Tom Glavin to the big leagues. Their friendship coming out of that Plus, I had to ask John Smoltz about strikeouts because he's the guy that set a lot of strikeout records for the Braves. Now Spencer Strider has an opportunity to take aim at some of those. I got John Smoltz's insight on Strider as well. You'll hear that conversation I had with John Smoltz this week. And since it was alumni week for the Braves, I'm going back in the archives for a great conversation I had with former Braves left fielder and world champion Ryan Klesko. All of that and more is coming your way on this edition of From the Diamond with Grant McCall. Now, more from the Diamond with Graham McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. As we continue our discussion about the Atlanta Braves with a little thing I like to call this week in Braves baseball. I want to lead it off with a discussion about the offense because as you look at this Atlanta Braves club, you size it up and you think, what makes this group great? How in the world do they have the best record in Major League Baseball? It doesn't take very long to examine the stats or just watch a Braves game and realize this offense is something special. Now, the Braves have struggled some in the second half, but in doing so and going through some of that adversity, you have seen this offense come to the rescue time and time again to help the Braves keep their head above water, to help them navigate some struggles by the pitching staff, and to, as a team does, pick up other groups and other players on a given night. And that's just one thing that makes this club click. Some nights, the pitching is certainly going to carry you, but other nights, it's going to be up to the offense. And this Braves offense, it does what it needs to do. When the Braves, this lineup just continues to march toward a home run history for both the franchise and for Major League Baseball. 237 home runs now for the Braves puts them just 12 away from the franchise record set in 2019. And that's not the only record set in 2019 that this club is taking aim at. Atlanta is on pace for 310 home runs this year, which would eclipse the 2019 Minnesota Twins, who had 307 home runs, the most by a club in a single season in Major League Baseball history. That is right out in front of the Braves with 38 games remaining in the season and a pace that has been, as far as home runs is concerned, hard to keep up with, nay, impossible to keep up with for anybody else in baseball. The Braves, with their 237 home runs to 124 games, that is 43 more home runs than the Los Angeles Dodgers, 53 more than the American League-leading Los Angeles Angels, who, of course, are powered in large part by Shohei Otani and could be getting Mike Trout back very soon. But the Braves' home runs, a big part of this offense, but this is no longer that one-trick pony that you might have felt like in years past that it was, where the Braves were feast or famine, where there were too many strikeouts and not enough base hits, and not enough overall runs being scored. Well, the Braves have scored more runs than anybody this season. 719 runs scored for the Braves. 907 is the modern franchise record, the most by any team in franchise history since 1900. It belongs to the 2003 Braves, the only other offense that I could think of that had this kind of power, versatility, is just as well-rounded as it could possibly be. But this year's club is on pace for 939 runs, and the most runs scored in all of baseball, 14 ahead of the Texas Rangers. And the only clubs with 700-plus runs scored 
are the Braves and the Rangers. The Dodgers are closing in, but Atlanta has scored 32 more runs than have the L.A. Dodgers this year. The Braves are batting 274 as a club. That is number one in Major League Baseball, and that's a big part of their 843 OPS, as are all those home runs. Also leading baseball in that category. But the big thing I was mentioning earlier about, well, all of this offense and how great it is, and clearly all these home runs and all these runs scored, great batting average, great OPS as a club, those are all things that add up to the success this offense has had. But the Braves have also cut their strikeouts down. As of Monday's action, the Braves have just 1,010 strikeouts. That is 24th in Major League Baseball. Only five clubs have struck out less. Meanwhile, the Braves last year struck out nearly 1,500 times. They were just too shy of that. That was the second most in all of baseball. So when you look at trends that made this offense go from very good last year at times, I mean, I would say good at the very least, to a great offense, cutting your strikeouts from being the second most and the most in the National League down to 24th in all of baseball, that's a good way to go ahead and make some improvements, and the Braves have most certainly made that. Now, we've seen career seasons in the makings. Ronald Acuna Jr. with an MVP caliber year. Matt Olson is making an MVP case and could end up with a single-season record for home runs in franchise history. He's got 43 of those and is leading MLB in runs batted in as well. He needs just eight more home runs to match Andrew Jones' 2005 record. Ozzie Albies could be back soon for the Braves. He's got 28 home runs and 90 runs batted in. A chance for career highs for him in both of those categories. Then, in the middle of the order... All of a sudden, Marcelo Zuna has heated up. Eddie Rosario has heated up. And the Braves have a very capable catching duo. We know what Orlando Arcia has done at shortstop. And out in center field, well, you've got Michael Harris II, who has moved up in the batting order with Albies out, but is clearly the most talented ninth-place hitter we may ever see in franchise history. Those are all just part of the mix of what makes this Braves club so good. As I mentioned, Atlanta is currently without a major cog of its lineup, though maybe not for much longer. Brian Snitker indicated on Monday that Ozzie Albies is ramping up, has been doing his running, and shouldn't need a rehab assignment unless he just really feels he wants a game. It's very likely, having missed just the 10 days, that Ozzie could be activated during the series against the San Francisco Giants this weekend as the Braves head out west. That obviously is a great scenario. You didn't want to take an injury and make it worse. And by giving it some rest, getting some treatment, and working his way back in over the last week and a half, hopefully Ozzie Albies can put any and all hamstring issues behind him for the rest of the season. That did bring Vaughn Grissom back from AAA Gwinnett briefly, though Nicky Lopez has gotten most of the starts at second base for the Braves. One of the reasons you saw at the trade deadline that the Braves went out to get somebody to just help out on the infield, somebody versatile, a defense-first profile like Nicky Lopez, was just in case you lost your shortstop or lost your second baseman. You didn't want to lose the defensive component that could come with it. And it's not a knock on Von Grissom, but clearly we know that's what he needs to work on and has been working on this year and needs to continue to get better. But the Braves wanted to make sure that they had some major league proven depth, and Nicky Lopez is certainly that. He picked up a whole bunch of base hits there early, drove in a whole bunch of runs. It's not the offense, though, that you're looking for from Nicky Lopez. It's can he play a capable second base or shortstop if needed? Can he fill in for anybody that might need a day? Or if you end up in an Ozzie Albee situation, who is going to step in for a couple of weeks and be able to help you defensively be where you need to be? And I think Nicky Lopez is the answer to that question. Now, Vaughn Grissom having a tremendous season in the minor leagues, though, He's batting 327 with a 400-plus on-base percentage, slugging nearly 500, 32 doubles, 50 runs knocked in, throwing 11 steals. 
in his 88 games. I think offensively he's shown every step of the way that he is capable of hitting. It'll be the defense that's going to help him earn an everyday position in the infield for Atlanta or wherever he may end up over the course of his big league career. We don't know where that's going to take him right now. But you look at the Braves infield, and it is pretty set, but maybe that's a discussion for another day. I talked about Marcelo Zuna heating up and Eddie Rosario heating up. Well, congrats to Eddie Rosario for being the National League Player of the Week as he absolutely torched the first week of this homestand. The New York Yankees and the San Francisco Giants were the victims, and Eddie Rosario winning Player of the Week. That gives the Braves six Players of the Week in 2023. No other team in baseball has more than two. Just something else that this Braves team is capable of this year. Ozuna, though, just had a 16-game hitting streak. It was snapped on Sunday, but he bounced right back on Monday to hit two home runs against the New York Mets. He has been exactly what the Braves need in the middle of the order. Protection for Matt Olson, with Sean Murphy tailing off a bit in the second half. Clearly, you've got Travis Darno. You'll still mix and match those guys, so still going to hit somewhere in the middle of that Braves order between five and seven. But Ozuna taking a big step forward and continuing what's been a resurgent season for him. This was well-timed. Eddie Rosario, meanwhile, has absolutely caught fire. On the homestand, batting 524. That's 11 for 21. The three homers and 10 runs knocked in. And, of course, those player of the week honors, not a big surprise whatsoever. His last 12 games, hitting over 400. Three homers, 13 runs knocked in, eight runs scored. It's just good to see Eddie Rosario getting himself back on track because both he and Ozuna had cooled off so much in the month of July that you kind of wondered, and I know Alex Antopoulos mentioned this, do you need to go out and get another bat to play left field or to DH for you down the stretch? Braves didn't end up doing that, and Rosario and Ozuna answering the call to help contribute to the Braves lineup, which was being counted on while the pitching staff was struggling. So that's a look at what's been going on with the Atlanta Braves from the offensive perspective. We'll get back into the pitching staff a little bit later in the show. But coming up next, I want you to hear my conversation with Hall of Famer John Smoltz. He discussed the trade that brought him to Atlanta, his friendship with Tom Glavin, his broadcast career, the players-only broadcast Valley Sports is going to be bringing back on the 23rd, and a little bit of insight on Braves pitcher Spencer Strider from another guy synonymous with strikeout. That's all coming your way next right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley. Now back to more Graham McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. As we continue from the Kia Studios here on a Sunday evening, wrapping up the week that was for the Atlanta Braves and looking forward to the continuation of a very long homestand as the New York Mets are set to roll into town. And the Braves will just look to keep winning series. They did it in New York last weekend, and they'll look to do it again here as they swept the Yankees took a series from the Giants, and now have a chance to, once again, beat up on the New York Mets. We're going to put all that off to the side for a moment, though, because this past week has been a very interesting one around the ballpark. We had Alumni Weekend, which I'll get into a little bit more later. We also had a very notable Braves alumni as part of the television broadcast in the Yankees series, and that, of course, was Hall of Famer John Smoltz. He'll be back around on August 23rd when Bally Sports does the players-only broadcast again Yep, they're going to reunite Chipper Jones, Tom Glavin, John Smoltz, and Jeff Francoeur. I'm sure a host of guests and other fun things are going on throughout the course of that broadcast, but August 23rd, you don't want to miss that. But I had an opportunity to catch up with John Smoltz because this month is always, I think, one to reflect on for Braves fans when you look at August of 1987. 
And why would you look at that month so closely? Well, because the Braves made one of the greatest trades in franchise history, sending Doyle Alexander, the veteran starter, to the Tigers in exchange for John Smoltz. In doing that, not only did they get Smoltz, who had become a Hall of Fame pitcher, but they were also able to start the big league career of another Hall of Fame pitcher in Tom Glavin. Those are just a couple of the things I wanted to talk to him about. Of course, that Bally Sports broadcast as well. But I got to catch up with John Smoltz this week at Truist Park. And here is our conversation right here on From the Diamond on 92.9 The Game. It's probably always fun for you to have a little bit of a homecoming. I know this wasn't the park in which you pitched, but what are those feelings when you do come back to what we do consider now to be the home of the Braves? Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, uh, the World Series, when I got to call on Fox, was like a full circle moment. Yeah. Uh, probably the hardest job I've ever had to do, but the most enjoyable from a standpoint of what everyone knew that I did for a living was play for the Atlanta Braves. So uh, in this new job that I'm in, I approach it the same way. I'm not afraid to laugh at myself. Me, you know, I'm not afraid to fail. I'll try to have fun. I try to inform and entertain. So here is more or less, if I could say it, this way, I do a Fox game, which is my livelihood and my job. Mm-hmm. It's more uh, suit-based, straight lace, and yeah. still can have fun. But there's, it's a total bias scenario, meaning you can't be biased to anything. You have to be, um, call it right down the middle. And where this is a bias scenario, you're you're the home team announcement, you know, uh, broadcast team. I'm just kind of filling in and having a good time with Jeff and. And then, of course, um, you know, we did that four-man booth. That was a lot of fun. So it's a little bit of perspective. I started my career kind of doing this mm-hmm. uh, with Ernie Johnson Jr. and um, Joe Simpson and, and the likes of Chip Carey. So yeah. I, I just I still uh, feel like I'm having a lot of fun. Yeah, and it's a pretty cool career. I know that obviously playing it at a very high level is one thing and a great accomplishment, but being able to spend all this time around the game, I'm sure it gives you, with your perspectives, a lot of opportunity to share some of the many things that you experienced over the course of your two decades in the majors. It is. A lot has changed. So you got to adapt. You know, I can't stay stuck in an era. Um, certainly, I've had to learn how to adjust to a lot of things that are going on, uh, whether it be in the, the philosophy of the game and some of the nuances. And I just uh, don't pretend that... Uh, when I got into this, everybody said, don't pay attention to uh, the noise that's out there because nobody understands that you're not rooting for somebody. Mm-hmm. And everyone thinks at a national level that a national broadcaster is rooting for the other team. So mm-hmm. if 50% is doing that, then I guess it's a pretty good a pretty good game because 50% think you're rooting for the other team and the other 50% think you're rooting for the other team. Yeah, well, talking about that four-man broadcast you guys were able to do and all of the other things, the guests and all the fun stuff, not to mention the game that we got to watch between right. the Braves and the Mets a little bit earlier, the announcement from Bally, you guys are going to do that again. I, wish, I want you to kind of walk me through, A, how much fun that was the first time and how much you're looking forward to being able to do it again with those guys. Yeah, you you don't know what you're ever going to expect um, when something new is being uh, kind of embarked and it was kind of the perfect storm. Um, you know, we didn't prehearse or rehearse or do anything. It was just sort of, it was just kind of organic. And that's the best. That's really what they wanted. They emphasize don't you're not play by play in anything. You're not calling a game. You're having a conversation. And we got a chance to, by the way, it was going to be one of the greatest pitching matchups that you see in the year. And it just not, <laughs> right. not only did it not turn into that, but it turned into an epic game that obviously had a lot of twists and turns. So I say like this, I, I do games all the time, um, and I've, n- I've never been as tired as that game only because I had so much fun. Like, you, you just – you're laughing, and you're, it, 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 the game was, was so entertaining from within that I felt myself like, wow, <laughs> that was a blast. 
but then I had to get up the next morning and go do a national game. So, you know, I had to get right back and, and do the thing that I um, do for a living. So that was a that was a fun uh, out of body experience, and and the realization was we all realize how important play by play is. Yeah, the play by play might just be who's driving the car, but I know just from a viewer's perspective and from everything you hear from Braves fans, there was a lot of enjoyment wrapped up in not only the final score, the final call, the poor Larry a crown, and all that good yeah. stuff. But you guys took a walk down memory lane. You had Greg Maddox popping in. I mean, it was pretty much a a Braves reunion, if you will, and a pretty great baseball game. Yeah, and I I heard that from a lot of people too as well. Like you're um, you're trying to do your best to entertain, and then you realize it's kind of like we're just back together, right? Um, the three of us, of course, Tommy, Greg, Tommy, uh, the four of us, spent the majority of our careers together. We all uh, touched uh, an interface with Jeff Francoeur, and you know, just to see the way each life uh, path has taken us, it's it's pretty interesting that we were able to get together and and be able to pull it off. And, and I think we'll have the same kind of fun won't promise anything from a standpoint of I don't think we'll try to trick it up too much yeah. um, but I think there will be a lot of fun a lot of laughter a lot of a lot of stories and hopefully again you know the game uh, is very entertaining yeah I'm sure a lot of people are looking forward to that I know I am and as far as stories are concerned it is the month of August you know, the midway portion of that I know you were asked about this on the anniversary of it but your trade to the Atlanta Braves is one that's been talked about an awful lot and clearly it's one that puts you on a path to a Hall of Fame career so uh, I know as you you talked about it on the broadcast the other night just the surprise of getting the call that you were traded but you know that phone call was one that certainly changed your life have you ever allowed yourself to think I've just always wondered this what if that hadn't happened? What if you had remained a Detroit Tiger? What that road might have looked like? Yeah, I have, and there's times where I'm I'm just a, a, I'm I'm different in the way that I think, and I and I think back, I'm like I would have made it, but I don't know that I would have made it the way I did. Meaning, it would have taken longer to make it with the Tigers. Uh, I, I'm one that gets after it and learns from my mistakes, but I no doubt that path was much easier to get to the big leagues with the Atlanta Braves. So that trade was so important in my career. Um, that I don't think twice about I if it hadn't happened, you know, would I have never made it? I don't I don't believe that to be the case. Right. I don't think you could think that way. But I do know that looking back, what an incredible moment it was for me. And I know this too. Glavin always reminds me, hey, that trade didn't just tighten you up. Mm -hmm. It tightened him up. You know, he got the call to the big leagues. Yeah. Because it opened up a spot, and then the rest was history. So the one thing I can tell you that when people talk about us three being Hall of Famers, that um, that we were always meant to be, that is a joke. Because we were never on a path to the Hall of Fame. We created a path. Mm -hmm. The organization gave us an opportunity, and our era did. But we lost a ton of games early. It was not a pretty picture. It was not like we were meant to be. Mm -hmm. We just flourished in an era that allowed us to both have all three of us learn and learn how to be great and then of course you know those two pursued it at the highest level and and I kind of came along and filled in the gap. Uh, now a man who obviously had a very big influence on your career managed you for the majority of that of course is Bobby Cox. He was the general manager at the time who made that trade. I was kind of curious when did you have that first conversation with Bobby Cox and being welcomed into the Braves organization what was that like? Yeah, it was kind of surreal because I was I was devastated from the trade. 
uh, had needed some time to kind of get over not being wanted, but then realizing I was wanted by somebody else. And I took a long drive to Richmond, Virginia, because that's where I needed to go uh, once the trade happened. Briefly talked with Bobby Cox and knew that he had, you know, was the reason on on me making the trade. What became unbelievable is that once he became the manager, you can imagine what that was like to see a player that you traded for Mm -hmm. and then to manage him and believe in him and kind of I never really looked at it this way, but I was kind of like the teeter-totter piece for his success or not. Not meaning that he wasn't going to be successful, but he would have been the guy that made the trade. And luckily for me, he was my manager, and he stuck by me, and he gave me every opportunity to be great. And I would not be the pitcher I am or the man I am without Bobby Cox as the manager. You mentioned Tom Glavin. He's a part of that broadcast and will be again here on the 23rd coming up. Um, A young Tom Glavin, a young John Smoltz, when you guys crossed paths and then, of course, came to the big leagues, took some lumps, obviously had a lot of success in the 1990s. What has it been like to form that friendship, that bond that's obviously lasted for decades? Yeah, you know, we were kind of the same kind of, um, grew up kind of the same area, not 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 necessarily the region, but he grew up middle class kind of with parents similar to mine and had some of the blue collar kind of work ethics that I admired. And I think that's where we kind of gelled with each other and how we went about it was in different ways. I had different style pitching than he did. But he taught me a lot of how to kind of gut it out and hide your emotions. You know, don't show it. I was a very show my emotions type guy. And he taught me things indirectly as did Greg Maddox. And we bonded because our personalities didn't allow us to be worried about who the guy was going to be. Like, who's the ace? And I think that could have been very fragile if we all wanted to be that guy. Like, certainly for me, I would have been let down a lot because seeing what they did. But we, we, we played a ton of golf together. I was kind of a fish out of water when I got here. Um, they had already established a young pitching prospects in the barn leagues. And I was the guy that was traded for that was supposed to, you know, hopefully be uh, what I ended up being. And yeah. they, they just let me in. They, they, they basically took me in right away. And, and I was grateful for that. Let me wrap up with this. I mean, you're a guy that set a lot of records for this Atlanta Braves franchise, including uh, the single-season strikeout record. There's a gentleman that the Braves have now named Spencer Strider who has made quite a name for himself on strikeouts over his first couple of years. What do you see in him, and what do you think the ceiling is for Spencer Strider as he moves forward and pursues not just records, but the ability to be a power pitcher in today's game? Yeah, I hope selfishly he can stay healthy. I really do. I know this. we're in an era of just pitchers getting hurt all the time. I think he knows his body. He's a special athlete with a special mindset that would allow him to pitch longer than what people you know, may want to put him through the mill. I, I hope that he progresses the way we did. He's so far better than all of us, it's not even close. But the one thing that we were lucky enough to do is pitch 20 years plus and that's just not going to happen anymore, you know. And I hope he can just rise above that and become his own freak and not adhere to a lot of the things that are happening in the game. As far as the strikeouts go, he's just got phenomenal stuff. He'll learn to become a better pitcher. He'll realize that he doesn't have to strike out 14 every game. But we're in an area of sexy stats, and that's what really kind of – and I hope he'll realize that if he pitches a game in eight innings and only strikes out five, they're going to go, what happened? What's wrong? Hey, I won, by the way, and I pitched well. <laughs> we got to get away from that, and I think he'll be just fine. He's going to shatter a lot of records, but I hope he's able to shatter them because he stays healthy. Well, Braves legend, Hall of Famer John Smoltz, appreciate all the time, and look forward to seeing you around the ballpark again soon. My pleasure. 
You heard John Smalls tell you all about it there. I had a conversation with Tom Glavin a little bit earlier on this season about that time in their career, that 1987 time frame, that August, in which both of their careers launched, as we just talked about. And I got to tell that story in a piece for the Marietta Daily Journal. If you follow me on social media, at Grant McCauley, you can also find it on Facebook. Just search for From the Diamond, and you will get a link to the John Smoltz and Tom Glavin bond that is carrying right on through here to the year 2023. Is there in a different kind of rotation? This one, behind a microphone instead of on a mount. Always great to catch up with the Hall of Famer John Smoltz. Had an opportunity to talk with Jeff Rancourt, with Tom Glavin about that broadcast as well. Everybody had such a great time. They got a memorable game out of it, and there's no two ways about it. The Braves would love to have that kind of finish so that they can print all the T-shirts they want. The Poor Larry, all the crowds he wants after that one. But we'll see what plays out on August the 23rd. But you could tell they're having a lot of fun. And when you're having a lot of fun in that booth, it's going to translate right across to the television or whatever device you're watching that game on. And I think that the fun that is had by reuniting those Braves teammates that four different phases of their career, as John Smoltz said, they shared some memories and they get to share them with you right there on that television broadcast. So again, August the 23rd, it'll be that Braves players only broadcast happening on Bally Sports. When we come back, though, we are going to shift our focus from the Atlanta Braves to some of the big stories happening across the world of baseball. We'll get into all of it next right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley as we take our trip around the big leagues next on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I love baseball. Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back into From the Diamond on Sports Radio, 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios. We embark on hour number two of the show. Great chat with the Hall of Famer John Smoltz, who gave you some insight on the whole broadcasting gig, as it were. And, of course, uh, spent a little bit of time with some friends, and that walked down memory lane. I just enjoyed being able to ask him that question. I've been waiting a long time to just say, you ever thought what would have happened if you were a Detroit Tiger instead of an Atlanta Brave? So I thought it was kind of fun. To get that kind of perspective, again, if you missed that, you can check it out. It'll be on the podcast and from the Diamond. It's available wherever you get your podcast, also on the Odyssey app. And if you need links to any shows and a trip to the archives, well, you can find that at fromthediamond.com. Meanwhile, it is time to take our trip around the big leagues. Unfortunately, the Los Angeles Angels, who made a decision at the trade deadline and one that I think was a good one to try to go for it, bring some players in, and maybe entice Shohei Otani to stick around as he hits free agency this coming winter, but the Angels have really stumbled since the All-Star break. They're just 5-13. and 13. They were off on Sunday, but I think that Friday night's game may have just absolutely epitomized what has been the Los Angeles Angels, maybe not just since the trade deadline, but in their time with Shohei Otani in general. I want you to take a listen to a couple of highlights and think about what the outcome should have been for this game. Here's what was going on in Anaheim for the Angels on Friday night against the Tampa Bay Rays, starting with Mr. Shohei Otani. The 1-0 to Shohei. Swing and a drive out to right field. That one's got a chance and it's gone! Grand slam, Shohei Otani! The next 1-2 pitch home, another fastball hit on the ground to shortstop. Ren Hefo to draw to get the double play. Here comes Diaz trying to score. He's out at the plate! Wow! A triple play! <laughs> hey! Unbelievable string of events there for the Angels. You would think you got Shohei Otani hitting a grand slam. You're turning a triple play in the ninth inning. You should have a chance to win a baseball game. And they did have a chance, but unfortunately, it went to extras tied 6-6. The Angels were unable to manufacture a run in the 10th inning. 
and the Rays went ahead and scored three times and picked up a victory. And it's just been kind of an ongoing, I don't know what you want to call it now, maybe a meme of sorts with the Angels. And it started with Mike Trout, and now it moves on to Shohei Otani and Mike Trout that the Angels, despite incredible performances by two of the greatest baseball players of this or perhaps any generation, cannot figure out ways to A, have a winning season, B, get to the playoffs, and on some days, maybe underscoring all of that, just find a way to win a baseball game when one or both of them does something absolutely incredible. And on top of that, you turn a triple play. Just not going the Angels' way in that regard. And, of course, we still will find out uh, what exactly that happens with Shohei Otani when we get to the offseason and the derby that should ensue when it comes to his free agency. Meanwhile, happening across baseball, how about a couple of hits, milestone hits at that? We're going to start in St. Louis where Cardinals shortstop Mason Wynn made his major league debut, and he picked up his first big league hit. That is always the way to do it. That's going to be an unforgettable night for him, but it might be unforgettable in another way. I want you to hear Mason Wynn's first hit, and then I'm going to lay out exactly what happened in the aftermath of the speedy shortstop legging out an infield single. Here is what happened with our old friend Chip Carey on the call for Bally Sports. Little chopper hit toward third. That ball is going to be late at first. Infield hit for Mason Wynn. There's his first in the big leagues tonight. Sounds pretty straightforward. First big league hit for Mason Wynn, who is a top prospect in the Cardinals organization, so obviously a lot of excitement around him. Hopefully a lot more hits are ahead of him in his Major League Baseball career Wynn, though, had already legged this thing out. Then you had Pete Alonso diving just to try to keep the ball close to first base and keep a speedy runner there. Everything seemed to be going to plan until Alonso decided to mistakenly throw the ball into the stands. And if you know anything about milestone baseballs, and particularly first major league hits, strikeouts, those kinds of things, time is typically called and the ball is rolled over to the dugout area where there's an authenticator for major league baseball who will authenticate that ball, and then that milestone will end up in that player's locker and go home with him. Because, again, it's a milestone. It's a first hit. It's a trophy of sorts. Unfortunately, Alonzo decided to fire it into the stands in St. Louis. Uh, Alonzo did take complete responsibility for this, saying that he just had a mental lapse in throwing the ball in the stands. He felt like robbed win of that special moment. He felt bad thinking about it, knowing that the ball is supposed to go into the dugout. Alonzo really, I think, took it pretty hard with this. Wynn, though, said that all he was thinking about was getting his first hit. He wasn't thinking about the baseball at all. It's just surreal kind of seeing the way that things played out after that. But the apology that came from Pete Alonso, I think, is certainly worth mentioning because they were able to sort all of this out. I think the fans were aware of what had gone on. I think there was a chant, if I'm not mistaken, that had broke out in the crowd there at Bush Stadium to give it back, give it back, and they, they got the baseball back. Alonso, though, apologized to Mason Wynn a little bit later in the game, and he also apologized to him with a gift. He sent him a bottle of 1942 tequila and signed a bat and had a personalized message that he sent over to Wynn after accidentally tossing the ball into the stands. He said, I just wanted to send him something because it's a pure accident, a stupid thing, and I want to say, hey, I'm sorry for doing that. I wish you all the best and hope you have a great career. So a classy move for a situation that had it unraveled a bit on Pete Alonso in a way that you might not have expected. Meanwhile, speaking of hits... Jose Altuve has been around long enough to get more than just one hit. In fact, he has racked up over 2,000 base hits, and that milestone occurred over the weekend. But unfortunately for Altuve, it didn't last as long as he would have liked. He didn't really get to savor the moment. Here's why. Down the line and left, and that ball is fair. There it is. Hit number 2,000 in Altuve's career, and he is going to be out at second base. 
Altuve hits one fair down the line and left and thrown out. Tube 2K results in a single and an out at second base. Unfortunately for Altuve, he didn't really get to savor that moment for too long. The crowd obviously was ready to cheer, and they did cheer, but when that single he tried to stretch into a double didn't work out as he was thrown out by the left fielder against the Seattle Mariners. Just had to kind of take the ball and head on back to the dugout, but a little bit of history for the Astros franchise is only Craig Bichio and Jeff Bagwell had reached 2,000 hits with that club. They've had a lot of awfully good players, and we'll see if Altuve, who's 33 years old now, is able to make any kind of an approach at Craig Biggio's franchise record of 3,060 hits. 2,001 career hits was what he ended up with. He was 3-for-5. The Mariners, who have been absolutely red-hot since the trade deadline when they really felt like they might be selling and giving up on the season, well, it's funny how that works. Uh, Altuve was 3-for-5, but Seattle won that game 10-3. to So congratulations to uh, Jose Altuve. There were also some other 2,000 hits Milestones reached this season, so this makes four of those. Of course, Freddie Freeman reached it with the Dodgers. Andrew McCutcheon with the Pirates and Elvis Andrews of the White Sox also got there to 2,000 hits. Meanwhile, I thought we'd wrap up with something that kind of brings us back full circle to the Atlanta Braves. You may know if you're a longtime sports fan that Spike Lee is a very big fan of New York sports. He's a very big fan of the New York Knicks, as we saw with his fun rivalry with Reggie Miller way back in the 1990s. He's also a very big Yankees fan. And he's got some ties to Atlanta here locally, having attended Morehouse and been born in Atlanta, which I did not know until Kelly Kroll of Valley Sports South did a great interview with him when the Yankees were in town a little bit earlier this week. Being as the series played out in a fashion that was not favorable at all to the New York Yankees, Spike Lee recognizing exactly how great your opponent was, and here's what he had to say to Kelly on Valley Sports South earlier this week. I got nothing to do with the outcome. <laughs> you can't blame a win or loss on me. And also, I got to give love to the Braves. They're the best team in baseball, so they're kicking up butts. They were most certainly doing that. The Braves swept the Yankees in the three-game series, and we talked about how rough things have been for the Los Angeles Angels. Since the trade deadline, well, the New York Yankees, it hasn't been much better for them. And if you start to look at the way everything is going, you got the Baltimore Orioles, who are 16 and a half games in front of the Yankees, who have been on quite a bender. They have lost eight games in a row, including a three-game sweep to the Atlanta Braves. They've lost nine out of ten. They have tumbled four games under 500. And this is the latest in the season the Yankees have been under 500 since way back in 1995, and they're in danger of missing the playoffs which is something that does not happen too terribly often for this New York Yankees club. That'll wrap things up, though, for our trip around the big leagues. Just a few news and notes that want to get you caught up on. But when we come back, we got a lot more fun ahead as we look at what was a, a very exciting, I feel like, weekend at Truist Park. It was Alumni Weekend. I went back into my archives. Remember the 1995 World Series champion Braves? Ryan Klesko. You'll hear my conversation with him as we continue on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I love baseball. Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. This weekend was Braves Alumni Weekend, and that got me thinking a lot about some of the great moments in the franchise's history, and I don't know that there is much of a bigger and better moment than winning the World Series. Braves did it in 2021, and also did it back in 1995, and for quite a while, that was the one everybody looked at. 
I had a chance a while back to catch up with one of the key members of the 1995 squad. His name is Ryan Klesko, the regular left fielder for the World Series champion Braves and a big bat in that World Series win over the Cleveland Indians at that time. Wanted to share with you my conversation with Ryan Klesko. You can find the full one in the archives of From the Diamond. Just check out fromthediamond.com. But here he is from my alumni archives, Braves left fielder Ryan Klesko. Before we even really get into the 95 season, I think 94 was a pretty fascinating year for you because I'm not sure if everyone remembers, but you ended up as Atlanta's left fielder because Ron Gant broke his leg and ended up getting released. And then Chipper Jones was injured in spring training that year. What was that transition like for you being a guy who played first base to going out to left field and kind of having to do it on the fly? Yeah, so that whole transition, you know, so 95 really, if you look at it, is my first full year of baseball, and then we won the World Series. 94 was my rookie year, but it was the strike year, and we didn't finish. So I get a call. I'm thinking I'm getting traded, right? I mean, there's the minor league system's loaded. We got prospects everywhere. You got Fred McGriff at first base, Ron Gant, all-star in left field. And, you know, I'm definitely thinking, I, and I'm stuck in the minor leagues wanting to, you know, go play somewhere, you know, preferably for the Braves. But, you know, they're just stacked everywhere. They're right. releasing guys in the minor leagues. They go on to play in the major leagues for a long periods of time. But, uh, yeah, so my first full, full year that I played in the season was 95. But, yeah, he gets – spring training goes as it's me, Chipper Jones, and Tony Tarasco. Chipper doesn't – I don't think he's ever played outfield. I've never played outfield. And Tony Tarasco was the big arm, the speed, mm-hmm. the average, and, and, and you know, a uh, little bit of power. And so Chipper goes down. We're all hitting right around 350, 400 in spring training at that time. Chipper goes down trying to beat out a ground ball, blows out his knee, and then it's Tony and I. Tony's a more established outfielder, but I'm more of a power guy. But Tony's just, you know, he can play the outfield. He's fast. He's got a guard. Well, he's going down the line, running down the line, and he tears his hamstring like three days before we break camp. So I'm like the last guy standing. You know, I ended up being, I don't know, second or third of rookie of the year. Had a pretty hot start. Yeah. Uh, did really well the first half. And then we went strikier my rookie year. And it was a lot of stuff. So really, uh, you look back at 95, it was my first full year. And you started getting more, a little bit more playing time each year. I was with the Braves uh, more and more at bats. Um, but 95, I still I didn't have a whole lot at bats. I think I hit 310 with uh, like 23 home runs, but I didn't have a lot at bats. I had, you know, maybe 150 or 200 less at bats than everybody else on the team. So I was still more of a platoon player uh, and was most of my career in Atlanta, uh, except for my last year or two, and then went on to San Diego and started playing every day. But, you know, we had good outfielders. I mean, there was a lot of good outfielders that came. Uh, Brian Hunter was there. Uh, Devereaux was there one year. And, I mean, we had some really good uh, outfielders that needed some playing time. You know, you had all-star. Who are you going to take out? A, a guy that's got two years in or Dave Justice? Well, right. Justice is better in the outfield than me, all right? So I I just basically was kind of like the last guy with the low salary with the young guy. Just is just got to kind of wait for your time to get more and more at-bats. And, and Bobby did start slowly giving me more and more at-bats and more playing time, so it was great. But, uh, you know, leading up to the World Series, uh, it was just a great, great year for me, a great year for the team, great for the, year for the city. And, who you know, you always think, man, this is going to happen again and again and again with the mm-hmm. talent, but – and now you think back after you played all those years, I mean, you were the best of the best of the whole year. I mean, a lot of guys that play their whole career never even get that chance. So I was very blessed, and uh, and uh, it's cool to be watching it with my son. Yeah, absolutely. And you joined a club that had been to the World Series twice already, had an incredible 1993 season. You mentioned the strike came along. And when people look back at the 90s Braves, you think of the Hall of Fame pitching staff that they had, three of those, a Hall of Fame manager. But as you mentioned yourself, Chipper Jones, Javi Lopez, and Young Braves were a big part of this 1995 championship team. 
what are your early memories of, I guess, meeting Chipper Jones and playing with him throughout the minors, and what really stood out to you from what you saw from the young Chipper Jones? He, I think he finally caught up with me in AAA. I was a year ahead of him. But I seen him in spring training. Uh, he just got bigger, faster, stronger every year. You know, he didn't have a whole lot of home runs in minor leagues. He didn't really fill out. He really didn't have a whole lot of uh, muscle until he started getting older. You know what I'm saying? He just mm-hmm. he was playing shortstop and hitting a lot of doubles. But you could tell he was, as he got older, he'd get bigger, faster, stronger, uh, and uh, just progressed, learned the game, took in the game, and just got better by, uh, around him. I mean, that's that's why he's in the Hall of Fame. He just it was just amazing how much he learned from the veterans and how much better he got uh, every year, uh, especially from, you know, first on, you know, he wasn't a power hitter, and then he is a power hitter, and then he, then he was weaker from the right side as a hitter, and he changed that, and I didn't have any weaknesses left or right side, and you can just tell he just made himself a better player every year, and, and it was fun to watch. And let's get into the postseason run, because that's where you guys had an awful lot of fun, of course. You take the NLE's crown, you beat the Rockies in the NLDS, you beat the Reds in the NLCS, and that's followed by an immediate two-games-to-none lead in the World Series. What was the mindset as the series moved back to Cleveland? Because, as you mentioned, there were guys who had come close to winning this thing before and hadn't been able to do it yet. Did you sense any added pressure or sense of urgency or anything else as you guys were taking the series up north to Cleveland? Well, you always know momentum change, and we learned that later on, especially when we're playing the Yankees. But, right. you know, any game, any momentum, a big change, anything, you just want to you just want to keep that out of your mind and just grind it out and play hard. And, you know, here you are up two to nothing, and then you lose game three in Cleveland. Tough game. Man, I didn't realize how bad our defense was that game hmm. and our base running. We just a little sloppy. We made some errors. But, you know, that's what happens. You know, sometimes you get a little bit, again, just that extra adrenaline you being in the World Series and you try to do too much with that ground ball, you come up a little bit too soon or you overthrow the ball. You know, you got guys, some of the guys in the dugout going into the bathroom stone up between innings because they're wow. so nervous. I mean, that's real stuff you got to deal with. Everybody's going to deal with this different stress in different ways, but when it came down to it, things were going pretty well as far as the way you want to start a World Series. Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin pick up their wins. And then you guys move it back up to Cleveland. For you, that's when the series really gets cranked up. You had a memorable run against the Indians. Three homers in those six games. When did it sink in that you were hitting these big home runs in a World Series in these big moments as a kid that I'm sure you dreamed about that quite a bit? Yeah, I mean, it's surreal. It really is. And and you think back, and, and I know I was panicking a little bit. I don't remember it you know, bad now, but first two games, you might not be happy with yourself if you didn't get any hits, but... I'm trying to tell everybody, you know, look, you're facing Ora Hershiser, Dennis Martinez, they're making nasty pitches on you. You're facing Cy Young Award winners in the World Series just about every time you turn around. And mm-hmm. just like those guys, they're facing Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, John Smoltz. And I think I looked up Manny Ramirez and Jim Tomei. Maddox and Glavin were just carving those guys up. And good pitching usually shuts down good hitting. And that's what happened in this Cleveland Series. They had a bomb squad. I mean, they're talking about – you know, that team hit like 290, the highest batting average for a team in, you know, 50-something years. Yeah. But just remember, <laughs> they weren't facing those guys. So they ain't going to do that. And when the Reds, I think the Reds hit like 116 against us that prior series when we swept the Reds before going to the World Series. And looking back, you ask any one of our players, uh, which was the toughest team that we played? And we battled the Colorado Rockies. That team was a bomb squad. They can hit the pitchers. A lot of our starters did not like pitching in Colorado. They didn't have the confidence. They didn't mm-hmm. fill the ball. That team gave us a hard time. We had to come back. Chipper hit a big home run there. 
we had the battle for everyone in Colorado. That team gave us a run. And remember, that's only a five-game series. Right. Kind of setting the stage by fighting through those games. Of course, you mentioned you swept the Reds. You get up to Cleveland by the time you come home. You're up three games to two in the World Series. Tom Glavin's on the mound. You mentioned what he's capable of, Greg Maddox is capable of. How much confidence did the team have with him on the mound for that night, for that game? And what was it like to watch him work in game six? Oh, it was amazing. You could tell, you know, when Tommy's on, you can tell right away. And, and most of the time, if a team got to Tommy, he's in the first inning. And I don't know. He's, he tried so many things over the years, you know, throwing a longer bullpen, throwing a shorter bullpen. But a lot of the really good pitchers, um, a lot of big-time pitchers uh, like that, usually got in trouble using the first inning. I think maybe just because they were trying to jump on the fastballs early on and, and they, and then, you know, vice versa, whatever. You know, I think Randy Johnson, some of these guys, if they got hit, these got hit early. And, but if Tommy got you and he was feeling it and he had the feel for it, you know, that late movement and that change up work and it didn't matter. And, you know, just watching back, it's funny because I honestly can't tell you a whole lot about other than just a couple of things. It's been so long ago. Then, so I'm enjoying watching this, uh, exactly what happened, but he, he was on and he was feeling it and he just wanted a run or two. And, and we did the interview the other day and, talk about hey just just give me one guys i just need one you know and and they asked me if i heard that and i was like well really i didn't because it's so loud there and you know there's a lot of noise in the dugout i know a lot of the players heard it but uh you know i might have been on the other end of the dugout or i might have been down in the tunnel or something trying to get some coffee or something but uh who knows who knows but uh, that was pretty cool um that game and the way he pitched and um the lot of Earl Hershiser and Des Martinez, those guys pitched their butts off. I mean, they, I mean, even Kenny Hill. I mean, he's nasty. We faced good pitching. You look at those offenses, and I know that some of the announcers are talking about horror. You know, our offense wasn't that good. I mean, I was, I was like laughing. I was like, "What do you mean we weren't that good? Look at that lineup." I mean, I, I, I don't buy those comments, and I've been listening to it. And it's funny because now, you know, twenty-five years later, we know the kind of season that you guys had. A and then B, who some of these players are. It was a little bit strange to hear that kind of thing. Yeah, and I think they were just looking at the – I mean, our average was down a little bit there. I think our mm-hmm. team average is like, what, 252 or 262. And that's even surprised me because Mark Seas, I think, played a little bit hurt that year. But he's yeah. usually like a, you know, a 280 guy. And you look at a lot, Javi Lopez, 280 guy. You know, DJ, uh, myself, I think I was a career 280 guy, 279, 280 guy. I mean, I was like, what? I, I think I hit 310 that year. But I was like, why is this – But it, and then look back, we had – Blouser was hurt, and then Belliard was, and they were looking at Belliard, and Belliard's average was down, and then they're looking at some stuff. I was like, that's not normal, but I, we had a really good hitting team. But their team, people didn't even know. Who, they didn't know who Manny Ramirez and Jim Tomei were. Are you kidding me? And Barger, I mean, Barger had put up some big numbers, but Tomei and Ramirez, they're just young. Like, it was just like me and Javi Lopez. No one really knew. And then you look back now, it's like, you know, uh, they carved up Manny. I mean, they, they were carving up Manny and Jim I mean, almost that whole series. Yeah, and they most definitely were. And for Tom Glavin, carving everybody up in Game 6, of course, he said he just needed a run or two. Well, he got that run courtesy of David Justice, who had kind of gotten on the fans' bad side with some of his comments during the World Series. David was even getting booed before he hit that Game 6 home run. Did you hear his comments before the game or at any point? And what did you guys think when he came through in the clutch with that huge home run? You know what? Being that you mentioned that, I know that there's some strike comments with Tommy and DJ and stuff like that. But I think now that thinking back, I think David had mentioned something about the fans back from Cleveland. Cleveland was loud. The fans were going crazy. And this was our third World Series. And, you know, in in Georgia, people have a tendency to be laid back a little bit, right? And that's Mm -hmm. just the Southern mentality. And I think David, DJ, was just calling him out a little bit, say, hey, 
won the World Series, you know, don't let us, the commentators are saying something about that Atlanta wasn't really that loud. And I think DJ was just calling them out like, hey, let's get excited. And I think they, I mean, he might have went about it the wrong way, but yeah, they didn't like it too much, I promise you. Yeah, well, they did love him after that home run, though. What were your memories of that? Because like you said, if Glavin's dialed in, you got him to run. It seemed to be all he needed. Yeah, I mean, I mean, who would have thought? Yeah, I mean, with these big offensive lineups, in my, in my opinion, going back, both teams had it. Even Lemke was a playoff machine. He got hits in all you know years, but uh, you would never think the games would be that tight. But then again, you look back, so okay, the, the way these guys were pitching when they were on Mad Dog, when he was on, it was one or two runs or less. Same thing with Glad. When he's on, it's going to be you know they're not going to get more than a couple runs, and then. But with that Cleveland offense, man, you make any mistakes. You open the door a little bit, you know, they just go. I mean, to be honest with you, I can't believe we didn't have a lot of big – you look back now, the big offenses and the big names, I can't believe that we didn't have any, like one or two big blowout games where it was like, you know, 10 to 9 or, or you know, a 12 to 8 or something like that with these big offenses. And Albert Bell hitting 50 home runs mm-hmm. and Byerga you know, hitting 340. Just But our pitching shut them down. I mean – you look back at now, it got Hall of Famer, Hall of Famer, Hall of Famer. Of course, they didn't get any runs, you know, but they still had to make their pitches in that situation against probably, honestly, one of the best lineups I've ever seen in my life. Uh, you look back at the numbers, and, and those guys, Mad Dog Lav uh, and Smoltzy, uh, Smoltzy, he didn't have a feel for the ball that one night, he said, but he still pitched pretty good. His slider was on, uh, he had some bad breaks, uh, in my opinion. He didn't really hit the ball that hard on him. He had some CNI singles, and some bad breaks, but uh, I think I thought they all pitched good. Yeah, well, Glavin took care of the first eight innings in Game 6. Mark Wohlers closed it out. Marquise Grissom runs down the final out in left center field at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. Ryan, can you walk me through what the ninth inning felt like from your vantage point and, of course, the celebration that followed? I mean, that right there. So, I think going in, I, I broke up the double play going after going in this back when it was legal. When you had to break up double play, you could go after the guy as long as you make an attempt at the bag. I tore the ligament on my left thumb, retore it, which I heard it in the year. So I'm playing with a torn ligament on my left hand. I wow. think I get a couple of bats and I come out once we get the lead. But I am I can't tell you what I'm taking or for my hand. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, put it this way, it was about numb and I couldn't feel my thumb, Yeah, man. I know that I was probably going to have to get surgery in the off season or just let it, you know, be out for a long time, but normal situation, I'm done, uh, for the season or done for at least uh, a month or so. Cause that ligament is definitely torn in my hand, but it's the sixth game of the world series. You got to play, right? So you, right. you tape it up, you take some, uh, Advil or whatever they gave me and, uh, you take as much as you can and, and get it out for as long as you can. And I was in a terrible amount of pain. We get the lead. I come out for defense. So I come off the bench. When we win that game, I'm flying off the bench and jumping for joy with my glorified air cast on my thumb. This has to rank right at the top of the great memories of your time in, with the Atlanta Braves, does it not? 100%. I mean, you, obviously, you still know. You, know, you think you're going to win more, but you get you enjoy the moment. And I did, we definitely did, and I'm glad I had a lot of friendships and uh, seen a lot of guys go to the Hall of Fame and learned a lot. And uh, just enjoyed playing with all those guys. Ryan, I really appreciate all of your time and your memories and the stories and the laughs that you were able to share about what was an incredible time in Atlanta Braves baseball and one I'm sure you look back on fondly. Thank you so much. Anytime, Grant. It's uh, good talking to you, buddy, and look forward to seeing you. My thanks once again to Ryan Klesko. That entire conversation can be found in the archives from thediamond.com. You can look it up there. A lot of great stuff left to get to on the show as we take a look at the week to come for the Atlanta Braves and cover a few more big stories from the week that was. That comes your way next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game.
Talking Braves and beyond. Baseball. With From the Diamond. Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back in to From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game as we wrap up our discussion about the Atlanta Braves, take a look at the week to come, but hit a few more headlines on our way to wrapping up this show. As I talked about earlier on, the Braves' starting rotation has been a huge focus in the second half. Their struggles were well-documented, and I don't know that there was any better example of uh, can it get any worse than the way things were trending at the first part of that 11-day road trip that the Braves took before coming home and having some success on this homestand. The Braves' rotation started to get right against the New York Mets a little over a week ago. They have carried that over quite nicely into this homestand. In fact, they reeled off a nine-start streak through Saturday with a 2.03 ERA in 53 and two-thirds innings. That was 12 earned runs for the Braves' starting staff over a nine-game span. Unfortunately, 10 of those earned runs belong to Yanni Chirinos. This was a discussion that has been at the forefront for the Braves. And even on winning clubs, great clubs, I mean, there's no question that there are areas and players that either, you know, they don't perform. You need to find ways to get a little bit better. You're kind of wondering, is this the best option that we have? And I think all of that's pretty much on the table with Yanni Chirinos. The Braves picked him up off waivers from the Tampa Bay Rays, a club that is very much known for putting a high value on pitching. But Chirinos was kind of the victim of a roster crunch that the Rays found themselves in. I don't think that they necessarily wanted to cut him loose, but you got to make some decisions throughout the course of a season where you hope maybe you can sneak somebody through waivers and they'll take a minor league assignment. Chirinos, though, since he doesn't have to take a minor league assignment, was not going to do that. The Rays placed him on waivers. The Braves picked him up. Uh, First couple of outings weren't necessarily alarming, but Chirinos, as this has gone on through his five starts, has simply not been the answer for the fifth starter spot in the Atlanta Braves rotation. Three and two-thirds innings, first time out against the Brewers, four earned runs on six hits. The next time out, three runs over five innings, picks up a win against the Los Angeles Angels. But the last three starts have been where the wheels have really started to come off. Five innings against the Pirates, he allowed six earned runs there. Four and two-thirds innings, six earned runs allowed last Sunday against the New York Mets. And then four innings against the San Francisco Giants, four more earned runs. And it just felt like it was going to be a grind when the first pitch of the game is hit over the right field wall for a home run. And that's exactly what happened to Chirinos. But you start to add up these numbers and nothing is really computing for the Braves continuing to run him out there when they have some other options that might be able to give them a bit more stability. You can count on the offense to do a lot. And as I mentioned, they scored eight and a half runs per game and won four out of the five starts that Chirinos made. But that's a trend that over the course of time is probably not going to be sustainable. Even for the Braves offense, eight and a half runs per game is asking an awful lot. Torino's turned in a 9.27 ERA in his time in the Braves rotation. That's 23 earned runs on 33 hits with seven walks and five homers across 22 and a third innings. Now, the Braves feel like there may be some upside in this play long-term with Chirinos. And when I say long-term, I mean 2024. He's under control through arbitration for one more year. He did show some promise for the Rays a few years ago, but missed nearly two seasons with Tommy John surgery. And I know you're always trying to balance the depth and the talent that you have on the roster, but it just doesn't feel like maybe now is the best time to see what Yanni Chirinos can do in rotation But it's somewhat difficult to watch a club as good as the Braves have somebody struggle so mightily in the rotation. Now, whether or not this is a project that Atlanta feels like could be worked on over the winter and spring training, giving him some time to kind of get back to form because this is his first full year after his return from Tommy John surgery, which happened in 2020. 
He was out until late 2022. There could be some upside there, but this doesn't feel like the timing as you're getting ready for the postseason to be having an experiment like this go on or simply uh, see what we can get out of this guy while you may have better options to win games because all of these games are not just important for the National League East race. They're also important for the best overall record in the home field advantage in the playoffs, which the Braves are keenly aware of. Now, I'll put all of this to rest by saying at least they won four out of his five starts, but a 15-day stay on the injured list is what's ahead for Chirinos, who's dealing with some elbow inflammation. If that was a thing that was bothering him throughout his time with the Braves, maybe something that's been barking at him throughout the course of the year, it might explain the lackluster results. But again, I think the Braves have some options to explore as they await Kyle Wright returning to this rotation in September. Now, a major step forward for that this week as we found out that Kyle is going to begin his rehab assignment with High A Rome on Thursday. I would imagine at least four, maybe five starts for Wright to get himself back into Atlanta's rotation in mid-September would be what's ahead. Now, you don't want to skip ahead, but this has been a long time coming, and it's good to see Kyle Wright taking this next step to get himself back on the mound, face some hitters in the minor leagues, and hopefully rejoin Atlanta's rotation in time to impact the decisions for the postseason starting five, which at that point becomes a little bit more of a starting three, maybe a starting four when you get into those seven-game series. And we'll cross that bridge when we get there, but some good news on the injury front for Kyle Wright. Now, the other options that the Braves have in the minor leagues, we saw Alan Winans on Monday. He struggled mightily against the New York Mets in his second outing against him charged with seven earned runs across four and a third innings. This after shutting out the Mets for seven innings to pick up his first big league win back on August the 12th. But it had been a nine-game layoff. He was facing the same team for a second consecutive time. That may have been a couple of things that were factors for Winans, who said he just wasn't able to execute pitches the way that he needs to. Now, the Braves optioned him to the minors. They brought up Jared Schuster, who might get a start in the Atlanta rotation next time through at some point on this road trip, maybe as soon as this weekend. But they've also got Michael Soroka in the minor leagues. And this, I think, is the name that garners the most attention because how can it not? What Soroka was for the Braves prior to his injury was a front-of-the-rotation starter. He was their opening day starter in 2020. I don't think anybody's asking him to have walked back through the door this year in his first taste of major league action since the 2020 season and be that guy again. But I will also say that even if he has struggled in some of his starts at the big league level and continues to try to smooth off some rough edges in the minors, I don't know that it's doing Soroka a lot of good to not have maybe the consistency that could come with getting to the major leagues, getting into that routine, and starting every fifth day. I know there's something to be said for maybe managing his workload and his innings and those kinds of things, but when you look at a guy like Yanni Chirinos getting valuable innings for the Braves, and you think about what Soroka has done to work himself to get back to this point, I know nothing is given and opportunities are earned, but it just feels like, again, that the innings could be going to a better candidate than Yanni Chirinos, and Michael Soroka would certainly check a lot of boxes in that regard. Now, again, this fifth starter conversation, whether we're talking about Michael Soroka, Alan Winans, Jared Schuster, A.J. Smith-Shawver, Dylan Dodd, whoever it may be, Yanni Chirinos. These are not guys who are going to be factors in your postseason rotation. For that to happen, a lot of other things would have to go wrong. We're not trying to solve the number one mystery for the Atlanta Braves that will unlock their postseason success. All you're trying to do, and the Braves have been trying to do this all year, is stabilize this rotation, and it does feel like some of the minor league options that they have, whether it is Soroka, Winans, Schuster, and the list goes on, shouldn't those guys get an opportunity 
as the Braves need him to, kind of like Bryce Elder did a year ago, to step up and step in and maybe help the Braves out when they're a little shorthanded. And that fifth spot has been a bit shorthanded lately. And you have the opportunity to maybe rest a Charlie Morton, a Spencer Strider, a Bryce Elder, maybe even a Max Freed as you get your starting rotation ready for what it's going to be asked to do in October when it does drop down to three men or drop down to four men and you want them to be as fresh as they possibly can be heading into those October battles. Meanwhile, let's talk about a little bit of a brighter note, and that is in the Braves' bullpen where they made a couple of trades prior to the deadline with the Colorado Rockies, and the first one was to pick up right-hander Pierce Johnson. He has been everything that a trade deadline acquisition needs to be if you're the Atlanta Braves. Someone else that could come in with some swing and miss stuff that could help fortify a bullpen that has been coming together here with the starting rotation struggling and covering a lot of big innings, and Pierce Johnson has been right in the middle of that. 11 games thus far, 11 and a third innings for Johnson in a Braves uniform. Just one run. It was unearned. It came in his very first outing. Nine hits, three walks, and 14 strikeouts for Johnson, who has really been a useful piece in a Braves bullpen that, as I mentioned, has really started to come together. You got A.J. Minter healthy again. Rysel Iglesias is throwing the ball well. Joe Jimenez has been on a nice roll. I think Kirby Yates has been more good than bad. I know Sunday was about as bad as it can get as far as self-inflicted wounds with two walks and two hit batsmen and a loss. But by and large, he has thrown some pretty good innings for the Braves lately as well. And you even saw Colin McHugh on Monday with three and a third very important innings and a season-high five strikeouts and no walks. If you can get Colin McHugh going, add him in. You've got the newcomers in Pierce Johnson and Brad Hand. I know Hand had a difficult outing against the New York Mets, but overall, you have to like both the depth and the versatility that you've got in this bullpen, and the Braves could add Dylan Lee to that mix by the time September rolls around as he continues his minor league rehab assignment with the Gwinnett Stripers. On top of that, Jesse Chavez is hoping to be back in this Braves bullpen mix sooner than later after finally getting some clarity on what was wrong with his leg, which, by the way, was a micro fracture that the initial imaging did not find. Well, now he knows, and he is making that progress, throwing live bullpen sessions, and hopefully he'll be out on a rehab assignment soon. Then the Braves could get back yet another key piece of this bullpen, potentially, for that postseason run. So this bullpen for the Braves, which has the best ERA in the National League at 343, second best in Major League Baseball, could be getting right at the right time and getting a little bit stronger at the right time as well, as we saw in 2021. And I think this will be true for any club that makes a sustained run of success through the month of October. You've got to have a strong bullpen to get it done. Brian Snitker was asked about that. He has made no bones about it. A big reason that the Braves won the World Series was the work of that bullpen, and they may need these guys, this new group, to do it all over again if they want to win it here in 2023. So that's a look at what's going on with the Braves pitching staff. And now let's take a look at the week ahead for the Braves. They'll wrap up their three-game series with the New York Mets on Wednesday, have an off day on Thursday. Then it's a 10-game road trip for the Braves that begins with three games in San Francisco, three in Colorado at Coors Field, and we all know what that can do to a pitching staff. And then you get to top it off with a trip to Dodger Stadium, a four-game series against the Dodgers beginning on Thursday the 31st before we turn the calendar to the month of September and down the stretch we will come. So that's what's ahead for the Atlanta Braves and that also will wrap up this week's edition of From the Diamond. As always, appreciate you guys checking out the show. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow along on social media. You can find me at Grant McCauley. The show is at From the Diamond. You can find all the links that you need at FromTheDiamond.com. 
Thanks again to my guest, Hall of Famer John Smoltz, who was very gracious with his time this past week at Truist Park and that great conversation that I had with Ryan Klesko about the 1995 World Series champion Braves. Hope you enjoyed that as well. That'll wrap things up here on this edition of the show. As always, make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and check out From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game each and every Sunday. That'll do it for now. We'll be back at it again on Sunday. And until then, so long, everyone. <laughs>